coronavirus stuff is what i'm pretty sure i don't have it but i've had a cough for like a week and i feel so bad whenever i cough i'm like everyone around me must be convinced i have the coronavirus that's with everyone everyone's been coughing all day and the second someone coughs it's like you have coronavirus no we don't have the coronavirus or if we do everyone has it and but we can't test for it because apparently there are not enough tests in the entire united states to effectively figure out who does and doesn't have it but we're all concerned about it. We're all washing our hands. I've washed my hands more often and for longer than I have. It's not about before. what actually is. It's about what people feel. Oh, man. And at, least, a... at least in terms of the stock market, which is going down like pretty much worse than we've ever seen before due oh. to the coronavirus. But now, it's just there the confidence is a stock of the market consumer. observation I can get behind. The stock market does indicate what people feel about yes. the economy and how people feel about the strength or lack thereof of the economy. Yep. And that's it's currently pretty rocked. People just want it to have security in a sense that we have control over the situation, but it's a biohazard, so good luck with that. Everything's up in the air. I mean, I, I, I'm really hoping that NSDA National still happens, but I don't know. I mean, at this point, districts in, in the Tar Heel East has been postponed. The Tar Heel Forensics League tournaments for state of yep. North Carolina was postponed, and... Uh, so far, the uh, oh, and the uh, National Debate Coach Association—they just canceled their tournament. Yep, I mean it's probably. <coughs> may, I have a feeling that someone is going to come up with a vaccine eventually, and then given like if they move Nats to like the end of the year ish, maybe like fall, we could have a nationals tournament. But then how how does that work for nationals next year? Because I, then just, it, they're too close together. These things are so they're so carefully calculated, and it takes a lot of work to pull them off. Yep. That when it gets thrown off. Well, you, you saw Japan canceled the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and as far as crazy. Like, Nats goes, people aren't going to have as much time to accumulate points to get to nationals either. So then that's right? going to mess up qualifications. Maybe they'll lower the limit or something of how many points yeah, you need. It's 25 points to get to. So it's not that, not is that, that big of a relatively deal. Relatively not difficult. No, I don't think so. Just to get to districts. Then it's winning districts. But, yeah. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Delves. We are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current world, or held in the current world of high school debate, and today we are going to talk about one of our favorite philosophers, Friedrich Nietzsche. Let's talk about Nietzsche. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, he, he's a lot of fun. Uh, I know we've been reading Nietzsche for what, three weeks now? Yeah, uh, about two, three weeks. Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. What, what's, what's been the most interesting idea so far? Uh, what, like, as far as his ideas go, he's... I think... Or your take on his idea, either He's way. critical. That's my take. It's pretty much everyone's take, whether you like him or dislike him. It's just he's a very critical philosopher. Um, one of my judges actually claimed that he was a Nietzschean, so he really he loves Nietzsche. He has a major in philosophy. My Harvard judges, that was. Um, and he was a huge fan. So I my favorite thing about Nietzsche is that he kind of gets you to think about 
the way things are. I guess every philosopher kind of does in a way, but Nietzsche kind of scares you when he makes you think about the way things are. Because he's like, well, if this is true and this is true, if you accept his premises, then he'll just take you straight along to the conclusion. You're like, wait, can I actually do that? He, he really does. I mean, he's, he's supremely logical, even though one of his philosophical descendants, a guy named Jacques Derrida, rejects logic, oddly enough. But Nietzsche does carry, I like that phrase, straight down the premises. He, he, he leads you right to his conclusions. His conclusions are, I would argue, wrong. I mean, I think he is terribly wrong in a lot of important ways. I was just listening to a, podcast, a philosophy podcast the other day on paradoxes. I think it's called In Our Time. It's like a BBC podcast or something where the, all with lots of British people coming together to talk about philosophy. And they were talking about paradoxes and the importance of paradoxes where the premises seem sound. It was all of Zeno's, Zeno of Alea's paradoxes. And they were talking about how the premises will lead you down a certain path of thought. And they look very viable. Premise one, viable. Premise two, viable. And then you get to an absurd conclusion that makes you go, oh, wait, we need to go back to the premises and reevaluate. I think the same thing goes for Nietzsche, is that his premises look like they could be true. They look pretty viable. It's like, yeah, you could look at it that way. You could look at it that way. And then the conclusion is so shocking that it causes you to go back and question, wait, how did we end up here? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good way to think about it. And, of course, for, for Nietzsche, the, the primary conclusion that at least – Seems to me to be necessary to kind of recall on every page we've read. Uh, he begin, He's the first philosopher we've read who begins convinced that God doesn't exist. And everything that is philosophically grounded on the existence of God has to be thrown out. He does it angrily. Because like, <clears throat> you have other philosophers that would deny God's existence, like Hume and... Mm -hmm. Well, Hume, I can't really say Descartes. I can't... Really, right, because Descartes still a good Catholic. He's, he's still... Um, yeah, but Hume, I mean, just seems like kind of a nice, kind, congenial guy. He looks like he would be saying those things. What was it? We, Treatise of Human Nature we read? Yep. And yep. he looks like he would be talking about those ideas with you while he's making you a nice pie or something. Yeah. Isn't that like a jolly Scottish, uh, right? Scottish Nietzsche, guy. though, like, I just kind of envision him, like, sitting there like, sharpening a dagger while he's he's saying these things. Or I maybe imagine like, him as, like, an old man shaking his fist really angrily. It, it, it kind of comes off to me that way. He comes off really angry, and he we're reading we're currently reading the Genealogy of Morals, uh, which was written in the later half of his life when he started to go more insane. And then he reached his breaking point where he saw the, a master beating their horse, and then he kind of was just like, "Oh my snapped. gosh, the horse snapped when <laughs> oh insane." Oh God! So, it, like, but then again, a lot of his interesting pieces come when he seems to be going more insane. So, why do you think he snapped when he saw someone beating a horse? Like, what? How? What constitutes ultimate insanity? Like, well, I mean, I, I lean more towards, I'm not entirely sure he's like, it's just a psychotic break. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a longstanding tradition that he had syphilis and that may have just been the time when the disease really rotted his mind. There's also other, there's other theorists who think that there's different psychological issues going on. I, I don't really know, but I think it's, it is interesting to me that somebody who spent his philosophical career arguing that everyone before him who claims to have studied the way things are has been wrong and that he has seen what's really there, he eventually got so disconnected from reality that it seems like his mind couldn't really exist in the real anymore. Yeah, and you can, you can definitely see that in the way that he writes, especially in the genealogy of morals. But he seems to just hand people exactly what they want. If you're someone who doesn't really, or either doesn't agree with the way morality presents itself in the world, or thinks that thinks that it's wrong entirely, he gives you exactly what you need to refute that. It's like, well, you don't actually know that that's true. That could be completely unfounded, just like everything else could be completely unfounded. Right. So why not just ignore it? Except you can't because society will press it down on you because the slave's morality has won over. 
Well, and uh, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, it may help our listeners just with a, a, a quick recap of kind of Nietzsche's general projects, and then we can get into the specifics of genealogy of morals. So Nietzsche is, his philosophy is really interesting. As we've already talked about, he's a contrarian. He wants to go against the normal thing. And in his day, the normal thing is the insistence that everybody does actually have a moral obligation to be good. You could think of that in terms of Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. You could think of that in terms of the natural law tradition. Religiously, the air that everyone breathed in 19th century Europe seems to be Christian air of some sort or another. And except by Nietzsche's day, the intellectual class had by and large abandoned the traditional doctrine of God as a person who spoke and who is existent in the, tri- uh, in the trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That had by and large really faded from intellectual Europe. And Nietzsche kind of arrives as this logical person who simultaneously wants to do two things. He wants to pursue truth no matter where it takes him. And he is determined to overthrow anything he believes to be a philosophical lie, which gives him then his writing has that sort of angry thrust of someone who has been fooled. And he's determined to never be fooled again and to keep his reader from being fooled. So he has that very philosophical, that very critical attitude of, like, I'm going to convince you that this is that you've either been wrong or that he is right and, and going to change the way you think. But he definitely has that negative tone to him as well. And uh, uh, so his, but his primary logical goal <coughs> when it comes to morals and ethics is to debunk anything that would ultimately rest upon the nature of God. Primarily, as we'll get into in a moment, in the genealogy of morals, he begins that with the nature of the word good and where that comes from. And if good turns on, if our understanding of good depends on some being who exists, but then that being does not exist, then our nature, our, our concept of what the good is has to change. So he, he didn't seem to go about this in a very, like you could describe his writings as angry, but I don't think he was a person, a necessarily evil person who was seeking an excuse to do what he thought was evil. Instead, I know, I remember he told his sister one time and I might butcher the quote, but he said, if you want security, then have faith. But if you want if you want to have truth and be a disciple of truth or something like that. He always called it the disciple of truth. Mm-hmm. So he, he has a perfect understanding that the truth might be scary and that it might be something undesirable. So he could he may even say that some of the things that he's quote-unquote discovered could be undesirable things or things that would not necessarily be as ideal as a slave morality would make it out to be. But at the same time, he's willing to sacrifice his security and his, I guess, happiness that comes along with that for what he thinks is true or what's more likely the yeah. truth. Which is something very admirable about him. It's honorable, him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, certainly his books, he does not pull any punches. He's not worried about censorship or, or gaining anybody's favor or keeping his job. He lost his job. Yeah, he, he was wildly unpopular. I mean, he, he has all He's those He's traveling marks. at this point, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was during that 20-year that spam where <clears throat> he was kind of going to and fro throughout Europe. And I mean, he has all these kind of hallmarks of like a prophet sort of figure a little bit yeah and that wasn't he wrote a book called thus spoke zarathustra right Mm -hmm. and was he supposed to be zarathustra in that book i think so but But he he never says that decided i think so okay so he even wrote a book about a prophet bringing his ideas to the table or i guess a different personification right right i've I've not read all of thus spoke zarathustra i've read the the opening bit it's 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 interesting but it's uh anyway okay well I've been talking and coughing long enough. You Ethan might have wanted to. Yeah, uh, I don't think so. But uh, hopefully not. But 
Uh, and certainly our listeners at least can't catch it by listening over the internet. I mean, it won't spread that way. So, uh, Ethan, uh, walk us through what you understand from genealogy of morals. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in as need be. But where, where does Nietzsche think that uh, good and evil come from? And how does that then tie to our frequent Lincoln-Douglas link uh, to ought and the world of the ideal? Yeah, I mean, the name of the game is to discover where good and evil came from. And his main attack is on the current understanding of good and evil. He began with the clergy and how they basically think they know what good and evil are and establishes what they think it is and then goes on to talk about where he actually thinks that it, com- it comes from. He believes that powerful people, powerful people have always pushed their will on everyone else just because they're powerful and you can't blame them for being powerful because that's just the way they are. And then uh, the weaker people, which he would call the slave class, or the powerful people would be called the master class or the aristocrats. Mm-hmm. And he, he uses etymology to, etymology to trace all of this back. All of the words associated with good have some sort of etymological tie to the word aristocrat. And then all of the other... Or, so, like, the goodness is literally established in the language as powerful and goodness have some sort of correlatory relationship, which he uses to justify that claim. But you have the master class of people who, are, uh, who have their idea of good and evil. And then you have the slave class, which is everybody else, essentially, who that has their ideas of good and evil. And the masters have instituted their certain ideas of morals. And because the slave class doesn't necessarily like that or agree with that, they need to do something to get around it. They need to do something to get back, essentially, at the master class. But they can't just, by sheer will of power or, or brutal strength, overcome the morals of the master class. They have to think of something else. And that something else is a very intellectual, almost poisonous way of instituting their will upon the master class. And one of the main ways that they've done that is with religion or the Judeo-Christian tradition, where the morals are not now power, strength, um, be the ability to put your will on others and let them do your bidding. Instead, the goal is humility, trust, things of that nature, where that the weaker class is able to have, and that would work to their advantage if everybody just abided by that standard. And he claims that naturally the morals, or whatever we consider morals to be, should be the will of the powerful people. You can't blame them for being powerful just because they're powerful. They get to institute their will because that's what they are. But now that the slave class, he thinks that the slave class has completely overrun them and that we've been foolish to let this happen because their morals, which have no grounding whatsoever, have sort of permeated society. And now everybody thinks that they're doing the wrong thing and they're acting like a powerful person, even if they're supposed to be a powerful person. He symbolizes all that through two different civilizations where he looks at Judea and Rome, where Rome symbolizes the, the strength of the old world and the, the, the might of the Lord who does what he wills. And Judea symbolizes the slave morality. And uh, this is where Nietzsche, uh, rightly or wrongly, gets the reputation for being anti-Semitic. He has some pretty strong words for the Jewish people. And he blames the slave morality on Jewish people. He says that, the Jew, that this is the Jews' revenge on the master races, where they literally, uh, they, uh, he uses the phrase, the transvaluation of values to describe how the slave morality eventually replaces the master morality. 
And where he's looking at an older ancient world that valued everything that it took to be a successful conqueror, uh, the kind of strength and vigor that might be expressed through rape and pillage, is replaced by the chival- chivalric knight who is, he has, still has to be strong, but primarily his strength must be governed by grace. And that, that in that transition, Nietzsche sees the triumph of the slave over the master in the sphere of morals. Uh, so that, he, he then, um, he, he talks in the genealogy of morals about how uh, it's, it's really the cross. Jesus on the cross is the primary way, primary method of bringing all of this into Rome. And he sort of picks up a thread that had been uh, brought in by earlier uh, Romans year, centuries ago, arguing that this is really part of how Christianity arose to take over Rome. And they did it by replacing Roman strength with Christian meekness. Yeah, and he, he also made the claim that this is the that Jesus was the ultimate temptation, or what Jesus stood for was the ultimate temptation and ultimate source of all of this, where he's like, why wouldn't people want to believe that? Why wouldn't people want to literally have God have come down to earth and died for them, and now they have an excuse to impose that type of morality? Like, with, with a, a spark and a starting point of that magnitude, how could it not be believable? But we've been foolish to let it be believable, because now the people who deserve to be in power are not in power and they're governed by these false morals. Right. And he, the, uh, what it seems now Nietzsche doesn't come out and say this directly, but it seems pretty clear to me that what he wants is a recovery of that older knightly aristocratic morality. And this is, it builds to what he introduced in the second essay was the phrase, the will to power where the aristocrat, the Lord in his might is the one who has, really developed the freedom to make a promise and to gain power over his fate such that he can fulfill the promise that he's made. And his will is the key there. Uh, and it's a will that is not bound by law. As a, In the second essay, Nietzsche does a lot with kind of looking at the way that society, law is really nothing more than the customs that a society has developed through their participation in a social contract. And as they then, uh, as they do that, then the law allows for, uh, uh, when people violate those laws, society is owed a debt and society can then uh, really take what they owe from the person who violated the law. But the one who has the ability to exercise his will to power stands above all of that. And that, for Nietzsche, that seems to really be the goal. All of civilization exists so that we can really produce this person who stands above society and exercises the will to power and can bring something into being. He really gets upset at the idea of guilt, too, where he he kind of argue, and he uses the persona of the blonde brute to illustrate this, too, where there's this blonde, brutish person, I guess you could say, that has been restrained by society and has had guilt imposed upon them by society. So now this person is all civilized. Maybe they've cut their long blonde hair, put on some nice clothes, learned some nice morals, and then they're stuck in this false view of what morality is supposed to be. Kind of become a wimp. Kind of a wimp, yeah. And this is especially upsetting to him because he's upset by wimpiness, you could say. He doesn't like that. He wants the strong people to be in power. He's at least saying that's more natural. He, He won't come out and say, like, I like it this way. He said, maybe it should be this way. He said, you can't blame a predator for being a predator, which mm-hmm. was an analogy beginning of second essay, I think. Something, Something like that. that. Yeah. It was like a bird of prey. You can't blame it for being a bird of prey, but of course mm-hmm. the prey is going to be upset because it's the one being eaten. Like, But this blonde brute needs to be released from its chains because those chains shouldn't be there. They're an illusion. They're false chains. 
and we need to get above that sense of morality. We need to let the beast be what it's going to be. And he sees positive consequences to this. He described the positive consequences in literally like one paragraph, maybe two sentences, where there would be dancing and happiness of some sort, where once the, once the freedom and guilt of society is off of our shoulders, we're allowed to live more freely, and that would ultimately lead to more happiness. Now, in what we've read, Nietzsche isn't terribly clear about this. You have to look at other passages where he kind of, other parts of his writing where he explores this. His, his, he argues that society constructs these moral systems and then teaches us to feel guilt when we violate these moral systems. And when we either pursue becoming like this person who is beyond good and evil, or the one who naturally is beyond good and evil is, arrives, well, then you suddenly begin to see that those, those constraints aren't real and you can do whatever you want. So... Uh, probably the easiest place to do that is in terms of sexual morality. The idea that uh, sexual relations should only be between uh, a man and a woman who are married, Nietzsche would say that's nothing but a social custom. And that if you truly understand that, well, then you can rise above the custom and you can indulge yourself in whatever lustful desires you want because there really is no real constraint on you. That guilt that you might feel, he would say, is nothing but what you've been taught to feel because you violated something that wasn't real. It was just what people told you. And uh, all the way up until this point, this is that that custom specifically has been a custom ever since the Judeo-Christian foundation came about. So in his in his day and time, this is an ultimate shock where you have a lot of the intellectual people are starting to drift away, have drifted away for a while now. And all of the normal people are still abiding by these customs. He's like, hold up, wait. You have no reason to believe that society has taught you guilt. Guilt doesn't actually mean anything. It's just a restraint on your freedom. But I'm wondering, how, how exactly does he suggest we get rid of this framework? Or, or like, I guess this guilty feeling. Because if guilt is something taught to us from a young age, which raises the question, can guilt be taught? How exactly do you throw that off of your shoulders without having some remnant of that inside of you? I think that's a great question, and I, I don't know that Nietzsche really answers that. That's such a that we <clears throat> crime and punishment too. We're I, re, like yep. we're reading a literature which kind of answers that question, I guess. It sort of does. A, gives a little like personal experience view on it, but it really does. I mean, because part of that, I mean, how you would answer that depends a lot on what you think people are, um, and it's inside a Nietzschean framework. I think he would begin with Nietzsche would answer your question. I think by saying you need to begin by recognizing that once you see that guilt as something that the powerful people have done to restrain you from something that's permitted, that's fine, there's no real restraint, well then you can train yourself to enjoy that thing without the bad feeling. And you need to kind of see that as part of your natural mastery or natural lordship over creation. Otherwise you are doomed to be nothing but a slave. And when you see it in that light, it changes the moral equation pretty substantially. But on the flip side, if Nietzsche's wrong, and uh, I don't want to, well, yeah, we'll just go ahead and go there. If Nietzsche's wrong, uh, then that, that guilt is resulting from a real violation of some real moral standard. It's interesting to think about, like, is he saying that the slaves have won or the slaves' morality has won? Because there's no way that the slaves would have won because that would mean that the slaves are now physically the most powerful people. But it's, well, it's let's, really like... Let's, let's explore that for just a second. Yeah, go. Um, That's what I'm asking. Yeah, so um, tell me, how many Romans do you know today? None. How many Jews do you know? Couple. Yeah. Who's still around? The Jews. Yep. 
Okay, so but that's that, just that's using the symbolism of Roman. I, I know, but that's not just, the concept, right? Isolated to just the United States, then. Okay. As far as powerful, um, non-powerful, right? People. And which ideas are more prevalently taught? Slave morality. Yeah, which he would, which needs you. I mean, that's the the idea of service is much more frequently taught than a leader is one who captures his enemy and slays him brutally and destroys him so that he has, doesn't have to worry about his other enemies. So then, physically and morally, the slaves have won. Now the slaves are at the top. Kind of, but. Because we don't have yeah. powerful people saying that stuff anymore. Well, so we then, do. And so we then don't. that moral, that transvaluation of values, not only morally puts people above each other, but physically, uh, over a course of time, puts the slaves over the masters. Kind of. I mean, and certainly, if you, I, I think you could make that argument, such that at the very least, uh, I mean, I think Nietzsche is right about this part. When he looks around Europe in the 1880s. It seems like there is so much of the Judeo-Christian world that has, it's either absorbed and transformed the ancient paganism or it's wiped out ancient paganism that he sees it as a total conquest. But he doesn't see, he doesn't see his new, if he were like a constructionist, I guess, he doesn't see his new world being a world of brutality and bloodshed and just people like killing each other left and right because... So what does he expect? What does he expect if powerful people just come back somehow and thrown away the morality? Like, just a ton of blonde beasts running around everywhere dancing? What kind of, like, world is that? Uh, I don't know. It, but it, it, the, uh, the best place I've seen this actually worked out in literature is in a science fiction novel uh, by a guy named Joe Haldeman. It's called The Forever War. Um, so, uh, listeners, if you have any interest in that, uh, The Forever War is a classic it's by a guy who went to Vietnam, who was in the Vietnam War, and then he came back, and he tried to conceptualize how America had changed over those six years, in the, or his years in the Vietnam War, however long it was. And uh, he did it by writing a sci-fi novel about a war that takes place in, in, in different, across different galaxies, and every battle is separated by centuries. So troops would go out, they fight a battle, they come back to Earth. 400 years has passed. Wow. And it's just a totally different world. It ends with the evolution of mankind into a totally different being. So I think the key part that we're missing right now in our discussion of uh, Das Übermensch is not so much just the fact that he's beyond good and evil, but also that he's completely, he's, he's completely other than human. So if you can make the analogy, uh, hum, uh, Das Übermensch is to humans as a human is to a chimpanzee. Okay. Where we're talking about a totally other species that has, and Nietzsche is kind of working within an evolutionary framework, within an evol evolutionary chain, where Das Übermensch could intellectually look back on us and think, aha, I came from that. He's talking about a lot of mental evolution for disliking psychologists so much. Oh, that, that's true. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's very true. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Nietzsche, and let, let's see. I think we should probably uh, shift this a bit towards debate. Yep, I was thinking uh, the same thing. So, yeah, where 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 do you see this guy tying in helpfully to for debaters? Critiques. Just critiques. I mean, because you don't really have a system to put in place to, to run, like, an affirmative. I mean, maybe an AF critique. But he doesn't really give you a lot to work with when you're trying to consider a framework to make a constructive debate around. But I think he'd be really useful for critiques. I mean... 
especially nowadays that uh, affirmative runs morality as their value literally every single time for every single topic and negative runs their value as morality pretty much every single time but a negative a negative could easily come up and run a critique saying hey you don't actually know what morality is and it sounds a lot better than a deontologist standing up and being like well you don't know what morality is because you're utilitarian and it's like yeah whatever we can measure it with utilitarianism it does it's not that bad on a surface level and probably not on a deep level so we're fine nietzsche would say well you're both wrong because we don't actually know what morality is and Morality is just a conception of powerful people. So if you're powerful, you've decided what morality is. Or even, and you can flip it to the other side too, because you could say Nietzsche thought that powerful people decided what morals were, or should decide what morals were. That's a problem. Or you could say that the slaves have taken over with morality, and because morality is inconsistent over time and changes so much, you don't have a solid foundation there. Take it from either end you want, which probably means you can make an affirmative or negative around the same idea. But either way, he just he's a philosopher of creating uncertainty. And when you've created uncertainty around something so fundamental like morals, which is what you're supposed to argue in LD debate, supposed to argue in LD debate, then you've created an effective critique of the realm. No, so that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think as we've been reading Nietzsche these last couple of weeks, it's, it's helped me seem, I, I keep finding myself being more in like a critique mind space in the sense that it's much easier for me to see where people are making assumptions that are inherently wrong or harmful because that's really what three-fourths of Nietzsche's philosophy is. It's him thinking about some area of language or society or religion or culture or whatever and then thinking about how people are wrong in the way they have construed that, that area, which is really most of what a critique really is. What do you come up with an alternative in the critique then? Because if you're saying we have no idea what morality is, Nietzsche certainly doesn't propose we just sit here and do nothing. He proposes that we make it the way it ought to be. So as a, as a negative debater coming up and running a critique against some affirmative saying you don't know what morals are, and they come back and say, well, what, what are we going to do instead? What do you say? Well, if I'm being a consistent Nietzschean, I would then say, well, then what we need to do, the basis of morality is for things actually being themselves to the greatest possible degree. So if, I don't know, if we were doing your current... Um, uh, so let's take the current, uh, it's March, we'll do the current March LD uh, resolution, predictive policing is unjust, and I'm going to run neg and say, well look, predictive policing may very well be just because what police officers need to do is be the most effective police officers possible, and in doing that, they are going to be the powerful people who are enacting their vision of reality onto the masses. So Nietzsche would praise the police officer who uses every tool at his disposal to effectively bring that into existence, and in doing so, he's acting as the strong. He's acting as the one who is beyond uh, critique. That sounds very Aristotelian. Really? Yeah. I thought of it sounded Nietzschean. Yeah, Where do you it, see Aristotle in there? Doesn't Aristotle argue that something is good once it is fully itself, or when it's fully it's well, being? Yeah, but, but remember, Nietzsche like the idea of too. excellence, I mean, right? Like, yeah, like if you're excellent once you're best that's being true. yourself. That's so true. Nietzsche has an idea of achieving excellence. It's a very fundamental idea in the philosophy, but I guess yeah, it's still but it's there. For, for Nietzsche, it's particularly about the powerful people being themselves, and they cannot be critiqued. Because they are just that. You I can see so many philosophers like entering the chat here. Kierkegaard, yeah, probably. powerful people choose yourselves. Or, or Aristotle, powerful <laughs> people best be yourselves. Nietzsche, powerful people be powerful people. Basically, yeah. So at least on the fly, that's 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 where I would go with with that. I mean, yeah, and no, I'm not saying I mean, that just, Aristotle and Nietzsche are completely mutually exclusive because oh they're both man. very different philosophers. <laughs> they they, they different. just have different goals, but the idea of excellence is still there. Like. 
And Aristotle was just more of like a pioneer in thought, I guess you could say. So Nietzsche's taking the same idea. You mm-hmm. judge something, how good, or I guess how whatever his definition of good is, how beneficial, whatnot, right. things are based on how well they be them they how well they be themselves. It's not a good sentence, but it works. I, I, I think I'm with you there. Um, I do see a, a way here for uh, uh, Kantian frameworks are pretty common in LD. Yep. Uh, and I think Nietzsche could be an effective counter to Immanuel mm, Kant yeah. because Kant asserts this categorical imperative. He asserts a universal moral law. He can't prove any of it. All he does is he, he's got you on the level of logic, but he cannot prove that it's actually good for us to imagine things if everyone did them and that that really does show us what the law is. And Nietzsche becomes a really effective way to then say, actually, what you're saying is just perpetuating a power paradigm. And then you'd have to explore that power paradigm and, and show how that's really what someone is using, is disguising as a Kantian approach. You'd have to take Nietzsche very bare bones and able if you wanted to do that, because he kind of argues in favor of the powerful people. And most critiques would argue for some minority or some group that is mm-hmm. not necessarily so powerful. Um, so maybe I can see an affirmative Nietzschean critique somehow there, or we need to make the people who are not powerful, powerful. I don't know, because Nietzsche wants the truly like brutal people to win out, right? So who then are if always the few, so he's not going to be like this. Who's physically the few, but like then when you, when you have people asserting power over other people, the other mm-hmm. team has ground to say they shouldn't be in power, they shouldn't be in power, whatnot. That's where critiques all come from. So if Nietzsche's arguing for brutal people to be in power. The idea that we don't know where morals come from is true, but then if you trace them a little bit further, it's like, well, who should actually be in charge? That seems like a worse alternative, where the affirmative may be able to turn it back. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that... I be interesting. I kind of want to dig more into that subreddit we found earlier about uh, Nietzsche, be a Nietzsche framework in NLD. Maybe we just need to take it so bare minimum. Maybe like the abstract of his essay, first few paragraphs, it needs to be, <laughs> we don't know where morals are from. Here's a little bit of etymology. Here's a language K. But if you go further, it's like, who should be in charge? <laughs> well, affirmative is like, well, they're crazy. Might as well go with our plan. He's like, we don't need that. Well, and, we don't and, need blonde brutes running everywhere, just stealing things from people dancing. It's not the world we want to live in. It's true. John Rawls would not would not would not approve for sure. Nope. Um, and as a quick side note, we probably would want to get an actual contemporary linguist to vet Nietzsche's etymology. But he, I, he studied language for what six? Well, eight I know, years? but that doesn't necessarily mean he's right. It does mean. I'm sure I mean, someone has traced the etymology. I'm sure they have, back. but we we before we constructed a specific shell around that, I would want to know that. Well, he was perfectly logical, perfectly sane when he wrote this. I'm sure he perfectly, made no mistakes perfectly. in his logic. He only broke down after seeing a horse a couple years That's years right. months later. Well, he, he lasted 11 years after the horse scenes. That was in 1889. No, how long from when he wrote? Genealogy to oh, what I he saw. I think that was 1887. I think it was published it. So it was two years. Mm. It's pretty close to the end there. Well, I think we should probably wrap this up because we're coming in at a little over half an hour. It's a yep. good episode length. Um, Nietzsche is one of the most significant thinkers. Uh, he counts as a 20th century philosopher since he died just over the edge into 1900. Uh, one of my favorite contemporary thinkers is a French uh, hermeneutics philosopher named Paul Reichauer. He he calls Nietzsche one of the three masters of suspicion, uh, which I think is a helpful term because it helps us see what Nietzsche is really up to, uh, where I think philosophy is best served to help us appreciate what's really there. Nietzsche is up to something different. 
Nietzsche wants to make sure that we are not taken in and fooled by something else. Uh, but he's, he's got two other friends who are on a, on a similar uh, task. For Karl Marx, everything is about class struggle. And you may not realize it, but everything is about class struggle. And he's going to show you how it's really all about class struggle. For Sigmund Freud, everything is about repressed sexual desire. You may or may not know it, you may or may not see it, but everything is about repressed sexual desire. For Nietzsche, everything is about the hidden power dynamic. And for all three of these guys, they intentionally sought to overturn philosophy as it had come down to them. And they did. Uh, they became incredibly significant. Uh, Nietzsche is the intellectual forefather of contemporary identity politics, uh, of the contemporary feminist movements, contemporary racial theory, uh, critical race theory. Uh, he is, uh, their, uh, intersectionality is all kind of drawing on Nietzsche as a, as a source. Uh, so a lot of in interesting, significant thought tracks back to Nietzsche. And he's definitely one well worth dealing with. He, are all of those people mutually exclusive? No. Class, I mean, Freud, Marx, nope. Nietzsche. Nope. Imagine if all of the, all three of these things were true, and then one of them was just the center, and then the other two were consequences of that center. You have just described about 70% of scholarly books over the last hundred years, where they have attempted to basically take these three guys, like, ha-ha, I'm going to make... I'm going to describe how really whatever topic I've studied and gotten a PhD in, it's really about how class struggle is represented through uh, competing sexual power dynamics. Well, yeah, it's 2020, Boom. man. Yep, that's it. That's it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you've enjoyed us uh, thinking on this episode about Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Ethan, how can folks get in touch with us? If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at whatsthereis at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatsthereis underscore. Or go to our website where we post all of our episodes at www.whatsthereis.com. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. <laughs> <laughs>